I'm going to begin kind of in a weird way in showing why this topic is relevant. I really, I, you'll notice I didn't have to do that with the person of Christ. Chris didn't have to do that when we were thinking through the order of redemption that, uh, that God applies uh, Jesus's work to us through predestination and, uh, and even all the way through glorification like we thought about last week. But for a lot of reasons, um, some understandable, some less so, Christians tend to downplay the importance of rightly understanding what the Bible says about what a church is and how it should function. Honestly, probably the most common reason that ecclesiology gets neglected is because we don't think it's worth our time. We'll say, why study something that isn't a matter of first importance or isn't essential for salvation and really only tends to divide Christians? But what I hope that we'll see is that something doesn't have to be essential for salvation to be important. We have to have more than two categories of doctrines. We can't just have one folder that's essential for salvation and the other folder not important. There's a middle ground of, of something that's very important to the furtherance of the gospel, uh, but isn't essential in the gospel, to the gospel itself so that if you don't believe the right things about the church, then you're not a Christian. Um, with that in mind, let's hang our hats on two big reasons two major reasons why ecclesiology is such a big deal. Getting a biblical understanding of the church is such a big deal. Two reasons. First, ecclesiology matters because the gospel matters. So if we care about the gospel, we're going to care about ecclesiology, or at least we should. God's plan for spreading his glory all across the globe through the advance of his gospel is centered on the local church. So you can't possibly care too much about the church and care too much about being precise as to how the church is to be organized and to be governed. Christ himself established the church. He authorized groups of believers covenanted together in his name to protect and to display the gospel to the, to the world around us. Uh, the gospel is a message, right? It's, it's word spoken. It's a, it's, a, it's a message to believe, to be responded to. And the, and the church is where that message, which is invisible, becomes visible. It takes on shape. We see the effect of the gospel in the church. The gospel is brought into focus by our lives together. And again, this is God's design. He chose the church to be, as Paul says, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And as he says in Ephesians 3, the display of his glorious wisdom. When God wanted to show how powerful his gospel is and how wise he is in saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and uniting them to himself and to each other. He chose the institution of the local church. Brad had some great sermons on Ephesians 3 and 4 in particular. Uh, whenever we first moved here in the summer of 18, it would have been really worth going back and reflecting on. So since the church has been given this job description representing the triune God, representing his gospel by preaching it and living according to it. Ecclesiology is for fulfilling that God-given duty. Without understanding what it is that we are a part of, what it is that we are protecting, then we can't rightly fulfill uh, what God has for us as his people. Uh, besides, our ecclesiology should be ideally a natural, organic outgrowth of the gospel itself. So they're connected in that the gospel is supposed to give birth to a certain order, a certain church, a certain church order. Uh, the ministry of the gospel and churches 
will look different in a lot of ways in different contexts. But the church's main basic shape uh, of membership, of discipline, of preaching, of the ordinances, uh, of congregationalism, so on and so forth, should be discernible wherever the gospel is treasured. Because we believe that the gospel is sort of like a seed that grows into a particular gospel tree. So if you think about seeds, again, I'm not a gardener. I'm just, this is just an expose and talking about things uh, that you're not really sure about as far as illustration goes. But um, whenever you plant an apple seed, and whenever you plant an apple seed, sow the seed, you don't expect to reap oranges, right? Because a seed gives birth to, grows, sprouts into a certain kind of tree. Certain kinds of polity, of organization, of church government, sprout more or less naturally from that gospel. So we want our ecclesiology, what we think about the church, to be consistent with the gospel that we proclaim. Now, that may seem abstract. Let's think about an example. Take a church that believes, at least on paper, in theory, that repentance is part and parcel to the necessary response to the gospel in order to be saved, right? So we believe that you can't be a Christian unless you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ. But that same church, though they say that, don't practice church membership very carefully. Their church is full of members, people that they are putting before the world, saying, this person belongs to Jesus, who live in open and unrepentant sin. Their life doesn't bear any of the fruits of the Spirit. Actually, they look more like the fruits of the flesh that are also there in the book of Galatians. Can you see how the church is essentially contradicting itself? It's saying one thing with its lips, but in their actions, they're actually undermining what they say the gospel is. So they say repentance is necessary, but it's not actually necessary to be a member of our church. Their ecclesiology, their polity, isn't flowing from what they hold out to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about churches that don't practice the way that the New Testament will have them, they're not consistent with that gospel uh, in the way that they do church, so to speak. We want to be careful not to say those churches are false, because if they hold to the gospel, they believe the gospel, they preach the gospel, then praise God. They're inconsistent, but they're not false. Or another word that theologians have used is irregular meaning not regulated by the rule of Scripture. So they're inconsistent, which, of course, in so many ways, we all are, this side of glory. Um, but we still want to persuade them. We still think that over time that their understanding of the church may actually be deleterious or may lead to the weakening of their gospel witness over time. But we can sell them as true churches, uh, even though we disagree with them. And it would be hard to uh, plant churches with them and so on and so forth. Certain forms of church government uh, are more conducive to the church being a vibrant gospel witness. So not all church governments, not all church structure, not all ecclesiology uh, is equal. A biblical ecclesiology equips us with the tools and with the structures that God intends for us to have and that we need to guard the gospel from imposters and to love one another in such a way that we reveal God's love, right? How does uh, John say uh, in, in John 13, or Jesus say that, um, that people will know we're his disciples by the love we have for one another. And the church is where that is on display. To build a church on a bad ecclesiology is like building a home on a poor foundation. Immediately, you know, honestly, you might not notice much of a difference, right? 
But over time, gradually through the wear and tear of life, shifts and cracks begin to threaten and undermine the house's integrity. If we want our church's witness to outlast us to the next generation, then we must think biblically about how the local church should be structured and governed. Ecclesiology is for the gospel's sake. Again, the gospel creates the church, but the church promotes and displays and protects the gospel to the watching world. So the gospel matters. Ecclesiology should matter. Second thing, second big reason why ecclesiology matters and why we're having this conversation. Ecclesiology matters for our discipleship. Ecclesiology matters for our discipleship, our becoming more like Jesus Christ. We'll think about this more briefly, uh, but good ecclesiology tends to make more mature Christians. Now, just because you're a member of a good church doesn't mean that you will de facto be a more mature believer. We don't want to think of it like uh, in a mechanistic terms that you just sort of get plugged into this system and then you pop out on the other side, a more mature believer. However, the structures of a biblical polity, of a church that is rightly regulated by God's word, tend to, by the power of the spirit, make us more uh, more mature. We are pressed deeper into the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as we do that for one another. You know, even thinking about our church, or even thinking about our Christian life, rather, in the context of the local church, brings our gaze up out of our own chest, up towards God, and out to our brothers and sisters, so that our identity shifts from me and I to we and us. We're trained to consider others more important than ourselves. Our hearts can fall in love, not with just seeing God glorified in our own lives, but when we see God glorified in the lives of others, we get just as excited because God is being glorified in us and God's getting the glory that he deserves. In the church, we learn to submit and we learn to lead. And those two things go hand in hand. If you can't submit, then you are not able to lead. Even our elders submit to one another, right? Uh, Our faith is strengthened as we assure others and as we're assured by others that we truly belong to God's kingdom as we take the Lord's Supper, which we'll think about a little bit more then and more tomorrow. So that the church is the context for our Christian lives, so that our identity as Christians is tied up in our identities as the members of the church of which we're a part of, so that the most important thing about me, other than spiritually speaking, the most important thing about me is that I'm a Christian, and I'm a member of University Baptist Church. More than I'm a follower of this teacher or I am a part of this theological tradition, I'm a member of UBC. These are my people. These are the people that are watching over me and then I'm watching over under God's authority together. Biblical polity, especially the authority structures that hold the church together, kind of like a skeleton that, that, that hold everything and give it shape, puts us in the best position to grow into the image of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that pastors aren't supposed to do all the work of the ministry, but what? Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So that if our elders, if we structure our church so that our elders are put in the position to make all the final decisions on doctrine, on leadership, on membership, on discipline, ultimately doing the work of the church by themselves, then we as church members don't have a job to do anymore. We're put out of the job. We don't have anything ultimately that we're responsible for doing. We just let the pastors do. We outsource. And that's probably going to cause us to be lazy. Why do we need to know the gospel that well? 
Why do we need to understand what true conversion looks like? Our elders will do that. Uh, Chris noted that we did get the handouts put in the group chat. So check that out there. Um, so since we are a congregational church, we're an elder-led congregational church, which we'll think about much more next week, the whole church is responsible for the gospel ministry of UBC. We all have incentive to know the gospel well and to know what it looks like for someone to be genuinely transformed by the gospel so that we can exercise our authority as a church by bringing in members, seeing out members, voting on a statement of faith, uh, and electing leaders from among us that God raises up that will help us and equip us to do our job as church members. So I hope that you see ecclesiology isn't barren. It isn't, uh, it isn't a stricture to restrict life, but it gives life. When we live according to God's design, we flourish. And it's no different than in the local church. These authority structures help us to be who we need to be in Christ. And it helps us to help others to be who they're called to be in Christ, which is what we've promised to do for one another as church members. All right, I'm not seeing any questions in the chat, uh, so I can only assume it's terribly confusing or absolutely crystal clear. I'm sure it's the second one. Uh, always is, right? Um, again, any more questions on that? The first chapter of that book, Baptist Foundations, has a whole litany of reasons why polity in particular, <laughs> thanks, David. I appreciate you, brother. Um, uh, full of reasons why polity is important. And it fleshes out these ideas way more fully than I would ever be able to do during our time here. So that's our first big question. I should have mentioned we're going to structure these two weeks based on three or three questions each week, uh, six questions overall that will help us uh, think through a biblical ecclesiology. So that was the first one. Why does polity matter? Uh, why does ecclesiology matter? Why are we talking about this? Now, the second question. Uh, which is going to be a bit more in the biblical theological realm as we start to construct a biblical theology of the church from the ground up. So we're going to answer the question, who are the people of God? That's the first step to building an ecclesiology faithful to Scripture, is to identify who God's people are. If we, as a church, are Christ's body, we need to know who, what it means to be said body, uh, what qualifies someone to be a member of a local church. So we need to have clarity on this and before we will understand the church's nature. Uh, we need to uh, know as we read the scriptures who God's people are. And the short answer I'm going to give, and I'll, I'll tease this out, is that God's people are all those united to Christ by faith and therefore are therefore, are therefore included in the new covenant that he purchased with his blood. So God's people are all of those united to Christ by faith and therefore are included in the new covenant that he purchased with his blood, meaning that they have the, the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, and that they have the full and final forgiveness of their sins. The new covenant is the white hot center of our ecclesiology. It's where everything starts from. Everything that we're going to build on top of this foundation will go askew or completely crumble if we get this wrong. We believe that the new covenant, even though it stands in continuity, uh, in agreement with, uh, in continuance with the old covenant as part of God's one plan of salvation, we also believe that it's much different than the old covenant. So the new covenant has 
continuity, things that uh, are similar, and discontinuity, things that are very different with the Old Covenant. Uh, God's Old Covenant people, Israel, they were a geopolitical nation, much like the United States would be, uh, much like Jordan would be, the Republic of Jordan, and so on and so forth. Uh, It had a military arm. It uh, had a body politic with uh, official rulers, and that everyone within there uh, was subject to the laws of God. Israel was also a mixed group by design, meaning that Israel properly was made up of believers and unbelievers, such that Paul can say later on that not all of Israel is Israel, right, in the book of Romans, Uh, but they were considered a part of God's covenant community. And there are actually only two ways to become a part of God's chosen people, either by natural birth, right, just by Uh, regular uh, physical dissension or by naturalization. So becoming a citizen of Israel by coming and submitting to the law of God and becoming a Jew. The old covenant, as we see when we progress through the biblical narrative, actually wasn't designed to be God's final plan of salvation. So by the time we get to the Old Testament, we're seeing, hey, this old covenant has severe flaws, not because God's design was flawed, but because the old covenant was just a one part of how God's revelation was progressing to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We see by the end of the Old Testament, Israel still has a massive sin problem. Their hearts lead them to go astray from the Lord, and God's wrath remains on them. Uh, they have to continue those sacrifices. Uh, day after day and year after year at the uh, Day of Atonement. Uh, And they continue to need those sacrifices because they continue to sin. It's still ever in front of them that God's holy and they're not. Uh, And we see as we get closer to the end of the Old Testament, especially when we get to the Old Testament prophets, we start hearing about a new covenant that is to come, a new covenant that is to come. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles. I hope you have them there in front of you to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, 31 through 34. Jeremiah 33, 31 through 34. We see God promising a new covenant, an everlasting covenant. That, he says, what? Is explicitly different from the covenant God made with Israel. So there's that idea of discontinuity. He says, not like the one that I'm making with that I made with your fathers at Sinai, right? Um, So it stands in line with the promises of God, but it is different. And what makes this covenant different or better, as we'll see the author of Hebrews says? Well, there are two major differences that are coming with this new covenant between what the arrangement was with the old covenant. First, in the new covenant, everyone who is in the covenant community, everyone who we can say belongs to the people of God will be true believers. So God promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell every single one of his people. Again, unlike that old arrangement where you had that mixed group. He says, no one will have to look to his brother and say, know the Lord, because the idea is everyone who is in the covenant will know the Lord. Second, you see at the very end of the verse 34, everyone included in this new covenant people experience the full and final forgiveness of their sins. So there won't be a continual need for those animal sacrifices because Jeremiah is anticipating one to come who will offer a one-time sacrifice that will finally deal with the sin problem of God's people forever. Now the question remains, who are these people? Who are these new covenant people? Who partakes in it? Well, as I said before, 
the members of the new covenant are all those who are united to Christ by faith because Jesus is the one who fulfills these promises. So oftentimes, uh, people, when they think about the church, will either say that Israel and the church, there's absolutely no continuity between them whatsoever and almost hold them out as the two different people of God, right? More a more dispensational view. And then on the other side, you have covenant theologians, uh, mainly like your Presbyterians, your Reformed, and that since that will jump straight from church, uh, Israel to church, right? They say Israel, uh, the church fulfills the promises given to Israel, uh, which is partly right, probably more right, honestly, but it misses the fact that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the promises God gave to Abraham uh, that were inherited by Israel, but they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is true Israel. He's the one who is the perfectly obedient son who by his righteous life that Adam failed to do, Abraham failed to do, Israel failed to do, David failed to do. His perfectly obedient, righteous life, his substitutionary death where he makes atonement for our sins and the resurrection win all of these new covenant realities to all those who repent of their sins and trust in him. So how do we get in on this? We get in on it because Jesus, our King, purchases the Spirit, purchases our final forgiveness of sins. And we see that clearly, that the, the tie between Jesus giving the new covenant, and that we get the new covenant by union with him, uh, whenever he's sharing the first Lord's Supper with his disciples in the upper room. What does he say? This is the new covenant in my blood. His bloodshed brings salvation to his people. Hebrews 8 identifies Jesus as that high priest who has provided this better covenant. He says he finishes the chapter by saying the old covenant has become obsolete because something better is here. God's people under the new covenant are those who have been given the spirit and have received the forgiveness of sins because of their union with Christ. And the local church is where our membership in this new covenant gets lived out. So the, in, the new covenant is an invisible reality insofar as we can't see this, someone getting the spirit necessarily. We can't see someone's sins forgiven. But the new covenant takes shape, takes form, shows up. We put on our identity as members of the new covenant in the local church. It takes concrete, visible shape. Our, our claim to be filled with God's spirit and to be forgiven of our sins is proven in our membership in a local church. Now, since the church is an institution of the new covenant, it's going to have striking discontinuity or dissimilarities with how Israel was structured as God's old covenant people. So while Israel was a mixed community of believer and unbeliever, the church is only for those who have believed and been saved. So an implication of this, contra maybe a Presbyterian view or a Methodist view, uh, is that our children, until they have believed for themselves and have been baptized, are not, strictly speaking, members of our church. Uh, we love them. We seek to help one another raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but they aren't, <clears throat> strictly speaking, a part of our body. Because the new covenant, unlike the old covenant, doesn't spread biologically by physical birth. It spreads supernaturally through supernatural spirit-wrought birth, through the regenerating work of the spirit, like Chris uh, had us think about a couple of weeks ago. Since the church is God's new covenant people, uh, we also hold, for instance, that church and state should be separate. You can't claim to be a member of the kingdom of God because you where, where you live or uh, what passport you hold. Uh, the, the state has no right to impose Christianity on others because 
Christianity is a matter of the heart. It takes repentance and faith, not the threat of violence to convert. And no ethnicity, uh, unlike in ancient Israel, has the right to be called the children of God just by de facto their ethnicity. No ethnicity, no group of people has the corner of the market on God's promises. God's new covenant people are all of those from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are united together by a common confession that Jesus Christ is their Savior, Lord, and supreme treasure, who glory in him by the power of the Spirit. You know, another way that we can drive this point home is by tracing the theme of God's presence with his people. So we'll see uh, where is God, where has God promised his presence? With whom has God promised his presence? And it'll help us again to, to nail down and add, add even more fiber to our understanding of who the people are, of God are as we use the whole Bible. So God's first dwelling place, uh, where he uh, resided in a, in a temporal sense with his people, uh, it was the garden, right, with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. What happened? They were removed from God's presence. But God didn't cease to dwell with his people. We have the tabernacle. We have the temple uh, as the story progresses. And we see that because God's holiness really was a threat to Israel uh, because of their ungodliness, uh, you see the temple where God's dwelling, where God's spirit resides, was also the place of sacrifice because a holy God can only be among unholy people through atonement. Israel's sin drives God's presence away from the temple in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, and it never returns in the same way, in the same way uh, even after the temple's built uh, after Israel's exile. It's not the same. So the question is, when we get to the New Testament, where is God's presence among his chosen people? Well, the New Testament's answer is Jesus. God is most present with us in Emmanuel. God with us who took on flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. Uh, the first two chapters of John are really clear that God's dwelling place with his people is in the person of Jesus Christ because he's God, right? He has a full divine nature uh, and he's a divine person. He's the son who is eternal, co-equal with God, taken on flesh so that he has a perfect humanity as well uh, who provides that necessary sacrifice so that we can be in God's presence. Um, whenever we think about the word Messiah, it really just means the anointed one or the one that's full of the spirit or the one who gives the spirit without measure. It gives the living water. Um, like we said earlier, uh, Jesus is the one who gives the spirit to his people, the church. Uh, Jesus says, in, or yeah, Jesus says in Matthew 18 and Matthew 28, that his presence is among churches gathered in his name as they fulfill their mission in the world. We find Peter calling the church a spiritual house, almost like a spiritual temple, so that God's place has actually become his people gathered together. You look at that in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Uh, he argues that the church is the dwelling place of God because we're united to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And you notice, again, that we are called living stones. And old Baptist writers used to use that to talk about how the church should only be made up of regenerate believers, only people that give evidence of being converted because we are living stones being brought together. And you think of how disastrous it would be if we add into that mix, knowingly or unknowingly, a stone that isn't alive. Well, then uh, the integrity of the whole building is going to be called into question. Um, and, and Paul echoes these same sentiments uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 uh, through 5. You can check that out as well.
So God's people, according to the Bible, are all of those who have been given a new heart by the grace of God. Heart of stone removed, heart of flesh received, sprinkled clean with, uh, with clean water, as, uh, as the book of Ezekiel uh, says when it, it talks about the new covenant. Um, the church should only be made up of those who have repented their sins and trusted in Christ. Only those who we have reason to believe belong to that new covenant, have experienced those new covenant realities. And we're able to, to do this because the new covenant promises come to us because Jesus has fulfilled them for us and applies them to us when we are united with him. Uh, the, this means the church, again, is only for baptized believers. Baptism is that way that we mark someone out as a member of the new covenant. So where do we show up as members of this new covenant? Where do we go public with that identity? Through baptism, by identifying with God and his people in that way. That's how church membership begins. It's the entry point, baptism. Any questions there? Uh, who are the people of God? Um, it, uh, it, uh, it's, it's helpful to, to try to capture the, the, the relationship between the new covenant and the church so that we really have no way to verify to ourselves really or to others that we actually have become partakers of that new covenant unless we live out our membership in that new covenant with other actual people, right? It's hard to demonstrate that our lives have been transformed by the gospel whenever we don't tangibly love others, whenever we don't commit ourselves to others. So many ways, like John says in 1 John, our love for God is proven in our love for our brothers and sisters. Uh, and that, again, takes actual, concrete, verifiable shape in the, in the local church. Uh, it's sort of like how we thought about in the universal church, uh, the, uni the local church is supposed to be a manifestation or an outpost, or as we'll think about in a sec, an embassy of the universal church. It's where the universal church shows up so that people can see it and they can behold God's glory. And so that we can see it and be encouraged uh, in our discipleship and growth. It's, it's part and parcel of our identity as being Christians. So that's what the, the, the connection is there. Um, all right. All right. We're going to keep going. The fire hydrant will continue. Let's think now. Third major question. The last one for the day. About the longest. Uh, what is a local church? What is a local church? Uh, I wonder what you would answer that question. I wonder how, rather, you would answer that question. Um, I know that um, there, there are uh, lots of folks that have gone to church for a long time. Maybe people have gone to church not so long. Maybe have studied to be pastors of churches, but struggle with this question. What is a church? Uh, well, let's turn quickly to our, in our Bibles to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. The context is Jesus asking his disciples who others say that he is. And they say, Jesus is Elijah, he's John the Baptist, somebody like that, less than his true identity. Uh, he asks his disciples then, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers. Uh, he answers for the group as he often did, but he got it correct, which he did not often do, um, and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, how does Jesus respond? He says he promises to build his church, his ecclesia, there's that word, which is actually the first time the word's used in the New Testament, uh, on Peter and his confession of identifying the true identity of Christ. Jesus isn't making Peter the first pope, and he's, not also, he's also not saying that the church is going to be built only on Peter's confession. 
the church, Jesus is saying, is actually going to be built on people like Peter who confess the true gospel, right? They know Jesus' identity and possess the true gospel, meaning they've been saved by that gospel. So the church is going to be built on people who know the gospel and who have evidence of the gospel transforming their lives. And then he goes on and promises them the keys of the kingdom. He says, uh, I'm going to build my church on this rock. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. And I'm giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter and those like him. And the keys of the kingdom are just a symbol of authority. You have in Isaiah um, a reference to the king being given the keys to, to bind and loose, as we'll think about. It's just, again, a symbol of authority, uh, the ability to open to shut. Uh, and that's what Jesus is giving these people authority to do, just that. It says binding and loosing. And it's probably helpful to think about binding and loosing as opening and shutting a door so that the keys of the kingdom give whoever possesses those keys of the kingdom the authority to make decisions, binding decisions on behalf of heaven regarding who does and who does not truly confess the gospel and who does not truly belong to or possess the true gospel. Uh, A lot to unpack there, Uh, but our reading of this text here in Matthew 16 is actually confirmed as we turn to Matthew 18. So flip now to Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Matthew 18, you know the context, I'm quite sure. Uh, Jesus is teaching on what will be the process of church discipline, right? Uh, Which we'll think about later. But you keep in mind that Jesus is talking about judging whether or not someone should be allowed to remain in good standing uh, in the people of God. And who does Jesus say that the final authority to make that decision belongs to? He says the church, right? Tell it to the church or the gathered assembly of people who, like Peter, know the gospel and know someone, what it looks like when someone's been saved by that gospel, can affirm this is the true gospel and this is a true gospel confessor. This is someone who is a legitimate Christian. And then for further confirmation that we're on the right track, Jesus uses that same language of binding and loosing. You see that there? Uh, He promises that where two or three are gathered in his name, it's key there, as representatives of his on earth, as the church, his presence is there with him. Jesus is, is delegating his authority to the local church to make decisions on who should and should not be publicly affirmed as a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's authorized the church to declare to the world on behalf of heaven, this is the true gospel, not that. Or this is a true Christian, not that. Churches are established by Jesus Christ himself as the highest earthly spiritual authority. We don't so much join churches as we submit to them. We have our our claim to know Jesus either affirmed or denied, uh, and our, our lives as Christians overseen and taken care of. The church, in this sense, is like an embassy. A church is like an embassy. So embassies represent the interests of a faraway country on foreign soil, right? Embassies have the authority to say who is and who is not a true citizen of their home country. So that if I am in uh, Berlin and I need someone to uh, affirm and and confirm that I am a citizen of the United States, I need the embassy of the United States to affirm, yes, this person is an actual American citizen. Embassies don't make people citizens, right? But they do have that authority to declare in a public way who is and who isn't a citizen. And you won't be able to get around that country uh, if, for instance, you lost your passport unless that country says, yes, he is one of ours. So similarly, 
churches represent the interest of heaven on earth, that foreign uh, coming kingdom on earth. Uh, churches um, have that authority to declare to the world who is and who isn't a true citizen of that heavenly kingdom. Uh, church membership, again, doesn't make someone a Christian. Uh, church discipline doesn't absolutely consign someone to hell. However, Jesus gives the church the power of affirmation or denial over someone's claim to know Jesus and their decision whether or not to extend that passport, so to speak, through giving baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is just a shorthand for church membership, is meant to point to and represent heaven's judgment. So we are speaking on behalf of heaven uh, on earth as a church. True citizens express that citizenship by submitting to a local outpost or embassy of God's kingdom, having their profession of faith affirmed and overseen by a body of fellow believers who love them, who covenant together to live the Christian life side by side. So that's also a lot, but let's try to bring that all together and even drill down uh, in a couple of places with a definition of the church, like I said, from Jonathan Lehman's little book, Church Membership. It's under a large stack of books. I'm not going to pull it out again. Church Membership, little blue book. Check it out on the bookstall. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read this definition, and then we'll work on it uh, bit by bit here as we finish up, uh, explaining both what it means theologically and also, at least for some of the parts, how it affects us practically. So here it is. Definition, what is a local church? A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. I'm going to do that again. This is also uh, delineated uh, line by line in that handout that Stephen posted in the chat. I'll read it again. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So let's take it bit by bit, five steps. First, the church is a group of Christians. Remember, properly speaking, only believers should be considered a part of the church. And of course, that doesn't mean that our children or visitors shouldn't be allowed in our services. It just means that the membership of the church, those that we are, are publicly recognizing and putting before the world as God's people, are only supposed to be believers. Only those who give reasonable evidence of having been born again, who have been baptized, and continue walking in holiness uh, according to the confession of faith, the profession of faith that they've made. You know, keep in mind that God's people are now God's place, so that the church isn't the building, right? Well, sometimes we slip into that, uh, and it's understandable. We all know what you mean, and you don't have to leave here and say, uh, you know, it's nice to be back. All right, I'm glad we can go to the church uh, and be like, well, the church is actually not the building, it's the people. You don't have to uh, uh, ecclesiology juke people, but it is good to rem remind ourselves, and that's why we say, um, we're going to welcome to this gathering of University Baptist Church, right? Because the gathering, the people themselves are the church, not the building that we're meeting in. So that we could be the gathering of University Baptist Church uh, out at a park or, or something like that. And lots of churches across the U.S. are doing that, actually. They're not meeting in their building because it uh, hasn't been allowed or isn't advised by the CDC and so on and so forth. So the, the church is a group of Christians. Second, the group, the church is a group of Christians who gather regularly. So we are University Baptist Church every day of the week. We don't lose that special relationship and responsibility that we have with one another when we leave on Sunday morning so that 
we could be the church scattered as well. But the essence of our church, we're never more the church than when we gather together. That's what characterizes us, is that we're a regular assembly. We regularly meet together to do uh, the work of the kingdom uh, on behalf of God as we worship him according to how he's revealed himself. That word ecclesia, again, the New Testament word for church, means gathering or assembly, literally congregation. Our life together is organized around and is centered on our Sunday morning gathering. So much so that the Bible in Hebrews 10.25 calls it a sin to actually habitually refuse to gather with the body. That is where the church is most the church. That is uh, what defines us really as an official representative body of the, he- of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Our, our gathering is that way where we show up. That's where we are visible. We assemble in the name of our God and declare our allegiance week after week uh, when we're able to, Lord willing, to our king as we preach his royal gospel, his royal law, and live under his authority. So that's where we primarily come to encourage one another and help one another. Uh, that's where we, uh, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to encourage uh, so that our services actually are the, the very center of our discipleship. And we'll talk about in a sec, when we come to those services, like Lord willing, we'll do here in just a little bit, if I'll, uh, if I'll get finished in time, um, we, we come there not to consume uh, as much as we also come to provide. We come to uh, help. We come to encourage. Um, we, uh, we, are, we, we center ourselves on this gathering as opposed to ABFs, which are great, life groups, which are great. They're not the gathered church. Uh, They're not the same as when we are officially gathered in Jesus's name, where he promises his special presence among us. Um, For this reason, friends, multi-site and multi-site church and multi-service churches even are not a good idea for this very reason. Uh, In fact, to have a so-called multi-site or service church is actually to redefine what the word church means. Uh, Like we talked about, it means assembly or, or gathering. To have a church, you need a people, you need a physical gathering in the name and authority of Christ, a visible witness to the gospel, and the exercise of those keys of the kingdom, like we talked about through preaching and the use of the ordinances, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. So it would be better to consider actually different services and different sites as their own churches, because technically speaking, that's what they are. They're their own assemblies. It really um, makes it impossible to know who I'm responsible for, who I'm covenanted together with, because I may not actually see any other people that don't come to my particular service, right? Um, It's hard to call something a church that never churches, a gathering that never gathers, a congregation that never congregates all together in the same place, because the church is organized uh, not just under the same leadership and shared vision like uh, some proponents of multi-site, multi-service churches will say, but we are, we are characterized by our regular gathering as we see one another and encourage one another. Um, to use Paul's metaphor of the body, think about this. If all the hands like to get up early, those go-getters, and they go to the 8.30 service, but then you have those lazy noses that like to sleep in and they catch the 11 o'clock service. The body that is meant to function together to contribute to the needs of, of the other can't function because our members are scattered all across different services and different sites, sometimes even different states, uh, instead of having that body all together assembled, exercising the gifts that the Spirit gives us for our common good, for our common maturity in Christ as we're built up into Him. Okay, rant over. I'm sorry. Let's move on. Third, a church is a group of Christians who gather regularly in Christ's name. 
That is, a church isn't just a random group of Christians who want to listen to someone talk about the Bible, pray, and sing some songs each Sunday, and let's just say we'll do it at 1030 each week, right? The difference between a random group of Christians and a church is polity, actually, is that uh, self-conscious authority structures set up that we submit to in the church under the Lord's authority. We meet as Christ's authorized representatives. So we're doing something purposeful. Uh, we self-consciously commit to one another. We covenant together around the same gospel, and we make promises to one another uh, in membership for how we'll live the Christian life together in light of that gospel, which is actually, if you think about it, what we have our statement of faith for and what we have our church covenant for, so that the statement of faith is the summary of what we've agreed to as a church is the gospel, and we're going to live according to this. We're going to protect this. Our gospel witness is centered on what we think the Bible teaches about who God is and what he's done in Christ. Uh, and then the statement of, or then our church covenant is the, is the document that uh, we agree to for how we're going to live our lives together in light of that gospel. So those documents aren't just documents. Uh, they are actively involved in our discipleship as a church. So, you know, you're a small group, uh, a men's prayer group, uh, so on and so forth, even though it can be super helpful, isn't technically the church. It may be made up of fellow church members, but a church is, is, is the, the, our church is most the church, uh, properly speaking, uh, the church, when we are all gathered together for the purpose of worshiping God together and exercising those, those keys of the kingdom through preaching uh, and practicing the ordinances. Um, Jesus promises his special presence to that big church gathering, to the whole church when we come together officially to do heaven's bidding on earth and worship our triune God. Now, fourth, uh, the church is a group of Christians regularly gathered in Christ's name to what? Officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ. So this may be the, the bit that's maybe the most unfamiliar, uh, but the gospel, it makes us Christians. Uh, and, and church membership doesn't, right? But the church is the institution that's responsible for affirming uh, us publicly as true followers of Christ. So that when come, someone comes and says, hey, I belong to Jesus, I got saved, it's the church's responsibility to either, on the basis of their evidence, say, yeah, I believe that's true, welcome into membership, or I'm not exactly sure if you do show evidence of that, let's talk about the gospel further. Um, if our claim to know God isn't validated by our membership in a gospel preaching church, then our claim to know God is actually baseless. Uh, it's, it, it's almost like a basketball player who says he plays on the team, I'm, I'm on the team, but never shows up for practice or games, right? Uh, just, wants to, the one, just wants to wear the jersey, but doesn't, uh, doesn't ever show up to do anything. Uh, if you don't uh, join a church, you have to question if you're really on the team. Uh, again, you can be a Christian and not a member of a church. However, it's very, very irregular, and it's not a good sign of where we're at spiritually uh, so that we would call that professional faith even into question. Uh, brothers and sisters, we have to be really careful for this reason who we publicly affirm as an official representative of Christ, which is exactly what we're doing when we bring someone into membership. Whenever we do that, when we're not careful about who we set forth uh, before the world as a member of our church and thus a member of Christ's new covenant, then we risk the gospel's reputation, uh, like giving out a team jersey to someone that looks like they're playing on the other team. It can be confusing and it can obscure our gospel witness because they think, well, the gospel doesn't make any difference. That guy is a member of this church. He's a Christian and uh, he lives just like I do. 
So it can be confusing. Um, but I don't want you to just see the negative of this affirmation, the role that the church has in affirming our profession of faith, because uh, it's actually incredibly encouraging, especially in seasons when you lack assurance of your own salvation. This is what I mean. Uh, you have all of us reminding you, hey, I know you're confused, but we see the fruit in your life. You belong to God. Take heart. We remind each other of this every time that we take the Lord's Supper. When we pass out those elements and we give them to each other, we're saying, this is Christ's body and blood for you. Drink, eat, uh, be encouraged, because we think you belong to Jesus Christ. So have, uh, so have, that, uh, have that as an assurance. Have that as an encouragement. It's our responsibility uh, to, to make sure uh, that, that we all have that, that assurance of, of faith. Um, each of us are, are responsible not only to mutually affirm one another's profession of faith, but also, as I said, to oversee it, uh, to, to not just stop at when we bring someone into membership, but to continue to encourage and to rebuke as the case requires, because we're imperfect people. Uh, we need help to reach the maturity in Christ that you would have for us. And we need help to make it safely home to glory, right? We need help so that our hearts aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does the author of Hebrews say? Um, help one another, encourage one another. The church gathers to accomplish these goals. We need to take an act, even today, take an active, if socially distanced, approach to our services. Because we aren't spectators. We're in the business of discipling each other. We all have responsibility for all of us making it to heaven, helping each other follow Jesus. Now, fifth and finally, the church does all this as we gather in and through the gospel preaching and the gospel ordinances. So Brad's sermons aren't just long because he likes to talk. That may be true, uh, but there is a theological purpose behind why the sermon is the focal point of our time together. Um, that Christ rules over his church through his word. So the authority that the church has, which is a real binding authority, is subjugated and, and is derivative of the authority that Christ has as our king, as the Lord of the universe. So our authority is underneath his authoritative speech that's given to us in the Bible. We're governed by it. Good preaching equips us to be the kind of God representatives that we need to be. We hear God's promises and God's warnings against our sin. We're encouraged, we're convicted, we're shaped into the kind of people that use the keys of the kingdom in a way that honor God. God's word uh, through faithful Bible teaching helps us to do that job of protecting the gospel because we know, when the, gospel, we know the gospel when we, hear, when we hear it and we know the effects of the gospel when we see it. We can make good decisions on doctrine, leadership, and who either to bring in or, or see out of membership because we're familiar with the marching orders that our king left us and gives us his spirit to fulfill. Now, gospel preaching goes hand in hand with gospel ordinances. When I say that, we just mean baptism and the Lord's Supper. The gospel that we preach is pictured in the ordinances as visible signs of our citizenship in God's kingdom. You know, far too often, we treat baptism and the Lord's Supper as a private devotional act, removed from the context of the local church. They are, however, meant to be community activities. So that baptism has two active parties. Two people speak in a baptism. Yes, it is absolutely someone declaring their allegiance to Christ, testifying of his resurrecting power in their life, saying, I belong to Jesus. And yet in baptism, the church also speaks. 
It's the church that baptizes. Someone can't baptize themselves. We don't have the authority to just baptize randoms, right? It's the church that has the authority to baptize. That is saying to the world, this person belongs to Jesus. Baptism in this way is the doorway into the the visible family of God. It's how members of the new covenant go public, uh, which another good book is Going Public by Bobby Jameson. Uh, The Lord's Supper is uh, the ongoing sign of our membership in Christ, so that if baptism marks our entry, the Lord's Supper marks our continual status as those who are members of God's kingdom. Uh, If you haven't been baptized, publicly affirmed as an ambassador of Christ and made part of the church, then the Lord's Supper isn't for you. The world should be able to know who God's people are solely by seeing who's been baptized and who regularly takes the Lord's Supper. And that's why we practice church discipline when we're not able to anymore affirm someone's profession of the faith, then we don't give them communion because in giving communion, we're giving them assurance and we don't want them to have that assurance because they don't have reason to have assurance because of their lives. We are excommunicating someone, right? For the word excommunication, which we'll, we'll talk about more in the membership and discipline section uh, in the first part of next week. These ordinances are how we pass out passports. It's our assurance uh, that we belong to the coming kingdom. And it's the church's declaration that, hey, you want to know what God is like? Look at this person. Look at these people. Uh, So that the ordinances are church acts that really mark off our membership and give God a visible witness uh, so that it's like drawing a bright yellow line, a bright yellow circle around God's people saying, you want to know what the gospel is like? You want to know who God is? Look at these people listen to the gospel they proclaim and, and see the effect of that gospel in their lives. And it, it helps us as we go about our mission uh, of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples of all nations. All right. We have transgressed our time limit um, uh, for maybe just a second. If you guys have any questions, uh, I know we need to get to our, uh, our gathering there at 1030. Um, but uh, any questions, again, you can, you can email me. I'll just give you my email now. It's Colton, C-O-L-T-O-N. I didn't say it right. C-O-L-T-O-N, M, quarter, C-O-R-T-E-R, at gmail.com. So it's C-O-L-T-O-N, M, C-O-R-T-E-R, at gmail.com. If you ever have any questions about this stuff or anything like that, uh, send me an email. I love to think and talk about these things. Um, and I would love to, to clarify. Uh, there's so much stuff you have to leave out, so much detail and nuance that uh, gets lost in, uh, in the time constraints that we have. Um, but, but please do send me anything uh, that you have that, that Chris would be a great resource as well and our elders too. Any of those great books, grab them and, and, uh, and dive into these things further. I know for me, um, especially some of the stuff in Matthew 16 and 18, took a long time to really concretize uh, in my understanding. And so reading Church Membership, that little book was super helpful. I actually uh, read it in what was uh, Mike Lumpkin's office uh, as an intern here in 2014. So um, really just immersing yourselves in these things and it really starts to click and it really makes the Christian life so much richer uh, as we think about what we are as members of the church and what we do as a church uh, to represent God and to help one another. Uh, and it revolutionizes our Christian lives whenever we think about ourselves, not just as individual Christians, 
but as members of University Baptist Church. It was a great privilege to be uh, with you, brothers and sisters, and uh, to actually be with you today. Uh, how encouraging that we get to think about ecclesiology on a week that uh, that we will, Lord willing, actually get to gather, uh, at least uh, hopefully a good, a good number of us. Um, with that, let's just go ahead and pray, and then I'll end the meeting. Send me anything that you have, and uh, I pray that uh, the result of our time together would just be that we love the church more and serve it more faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your local church. We thank you for Christians to help us, Christians to hold us accountable, Christians uh, to uh, give us to encourage us so that we learn how to love others as we love you, that we learn to uh, love your glory more than our own as we uh, are shaped and molded into the kind of disciples that you want us to be. We thank you for the gospel and pray that UBC would be a vibrant gospel witness, that we practice membership carefully, that we'd understand what your church is and what we're supposed to do as members of it, uh, and that you would be glorified among us and that lots of people would see the community that you've created as uh, that is University Baptist Church and would be compelled to repent of their sins and trust in Christ as they hear the gospel proclaimed. Uh, we pray that you would do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.